All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Galatians. In this session, we are going to look at Galatians 3, 1 through 14. And Galatians 3, 1 through 14 really breaks down into three pieces. The first piece will focus on the Galatians and their experience. And that's verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 9 will focus on Abraham and faith. And then the third piece, verses 10 through 14, will focus on Jesus and the law. And so Galatians 3, 1 through 14, broken down into two, three chunks. Now, before we jump into the details, let's make sure we remember the context. In the previous section, Paul wrapped up the autobiographical section of the letter, and he gave three snapshots in total from his life. And in wrapping it up, he ended with highlighting the fact that we are justified by faith in Jesus the Messiah, that Paul himself says that's how he lives. He lives the life he lives in the flesh. He lives by faith in the Messiah. Well, here in chapter 3, Paul now shifts to really theological argumentation for that very point, that saying in a nutshell that living by faith is the way God always intended it to be. And so we're going to focus on arguing that from Scripture here in this section. And so in the first uh, part of 3, 1 through 14, 3, 1 through 5, in that first portion of this, Paul highlights the Galatians' experience to say, just look at your own experience. How did you come to receive the Spirit? How did you come to experience all this? Was it by the law or was it by faith? And so he's highlighting the priority of faith in and through their experience. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 and following. He says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? And so this is a direct address and direct appeal to the Galatians to examine themselves. He, he has, as I just mentioned, said that, look, it's, it's been by faith. And so think about your own experience, O Galatians, who has bewitched you? And the idea of bewitched you literally is to kind of like cast a spell on you. The, the original language here has the idea of like, you know, the idea of the evil eye. It's the, this idea of trickery and casting a spell and in a world, you know, dominated by spells and magic as good parts of the ancient world was. This made a lot of sense, but then it would come by extension to be used as it is here, sort of more metaphorically to say, man, who has put you under their spell? Who has put you under their like persuasive appeal before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? And that idea of publicly portrayed just means, seems to suggest that when Paul preached Jesus to them, he preached it so clearly and so powerfully that it was almost as if they could visually picture Jesus himself being crucified on their behalf. So who has bewitched you that all this has changed? Notice verse 2. He says, this is the one thing I want to find out from you. So here's what I really want to know, O Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by the works of the Torah and the Old Testament, or by the hearing of faith? When God poured out His Spirit on you and you first became believers in Jesus and you experienced the gift of the Spirit, did that come because you were keeping the Old Testament law? Or did that come simply by virtue of hearing with faith, hearing and responding in faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being completed by the flesh? Like, Paul assumes the answer to the first question in verse 2. He assumes that they're going to say, well, we, it happened by the faith, right? And so he says, well, then having begun by the Spirit and by faith, 
Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this is the first instance of the really spirit-flesh contrast that we get in Galatians. Paul will uh, detail this contrast more fully in chapter 5, but it's two different modes of operating, two different ways of living. And notice in parallel with uh, verse 2, faith and spirit go together. Well, that would put the law and the flesh together here in verse 3. Oh man, that's that's a little offensive to the Judaizers and to the Jews, and Paul has a lot to say about that. We'll see more of this as we go through the theological explanation, and he'll help us understand that. But just for now, know that if you kind of picture two columns, there's going to be uh, two different columns, and in the law column and the, the faith column, or the spirit column and the flesh column, there's going to be this group of things that all go together, and Paul says the law is part of all these things that were part of the time period of the flesh and the period outside of Christ and the way of life outside of Messiah when all we had was human fallenness to to live with and to work with, all right? And so the law is put in the flesh column. Uh, Faith and spirit go together in their own column. And then in verse 4, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And there's a question about how to translate the word suffer here. Obviously, this translation says suffer, and that's a legitimate translation of the word. It could mean suffer. And if we translate it that way, that would suggest that the Galatians have suffered difficulty and hardship and maybe some persecution and opposition for their faith in Jesus. And that's possible. We just have never been told that. Or that word suffer could be translated just experience, and then it would just be more general to say, did you experience so many things? Did you experience the Spirit? Did you experience... Uh, some of the miracles that he's going to mention here in a second. Did you experience the the goodness of God in vain? And so, is it general experience, or does it refer to actual opposition and hardship? It's not totally clear. I tend to think general, but it's not totally clear. So, did you experience, or perhaps suffer, so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Vain has the idea of hopeless, useless. If indeed it was, suggests that you know, Paul's holding out hope. They haven't totally bought hook, line, and sinker, the Judaizers claim, but they're leaning in that direction. They're tending in that direction. And Paul's like, don't go there. That makes everything you've experienced useless, purposeless. So did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And then verse 5, he says, so then, therefore then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and who works miracles, there's that experience of miracles among you by virtue of the power of the Spirit through Paul and his team, perhaps through others who were endowed with this ability to work miracles. Does he, God, who provides you with his Spirit and who works miracles among you, does does he do it by the works of the law or does he do it by the hearing of faith? And so this sets up the key issue for Paul really here in Galatians. The key issue is this contrast between works of the Torah, works of the Old Testament law, and hearing with faith, and faith in Jesus Messiah. Which is it? How is God now currently marking out his people and organizing his people and working among his people? Which is it? And so in verses 1 through 5, Paul has really crystal clearly enunciated the issue that he wants to get at, that he wants to explore, that he wants to delve into, and that he wants the Galatians to really examine themselves on. Works of the law, hearing with faith. Which is it? Now, the second chunk in this section begins in verse 6, and it highlights Abraham and faith. And it does so to make the point that 
Faith is the way it's always and ultimately been. Faith is the key thing. Hearing with faith takes precedence and priority over the works of the law. And so that's the key point for this section and really for all of uh, chapter 3 and into chapter 4 from this point on. That's going to be the main thrust of the theological argumentation is the priority of faith, particularly as seen in Abraham's experience. And so why Abraham? Well, Abraham is not just like a random example. You know, Paul kind of ransacks his mind and ransacks the Old Testament and says, oh, here's a great example of faith, and he grabs Abraham. That's not the reason why Abraham. Why Abraham? Well, because Abraham is the fountainhead, the great patriarch of the people of God. Um, And so we really need to make sure we understand the whole story of the Bible in order to understand how it all fits together and where Abraham fits in that story. In fact, uh, I have a course on my website just called Learn the Word where it gives the, the first half. It's the big story of the Bible and goes through each of the books and shows how they fit in that. So if you want to know more, you can check that out. But let me just, in summary, kind of give you a quick overview, okay? Um, the Bible begins, obviously, with God creating the heavens and the earth, creating the whole world. And then as the culmination of that creation, he creates human beings in his own image and he places them in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, with a perfect relationship with each other and a perfect relationship with himself. It doesn't take long in the story of the Bible, however, for that perfect situation to be destroyed and ruined when Adam and Eve disobey God and eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. Um, that leads to what we classically call in Christian theology the fall. And um, now the whole world lies under a curse. And Adam and Eve as the first humans and the earth itself, it's all lying under a curse. But God doesn't give up on his project to have people among whom he can dwell and through whom he can reflect his character into the world. So what does God do? Well, as you read through the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man. The problem uh, was caused by humans. The solution is going to come through a human. So God calls a human being Abram or Abraham. God changes his name later. So God calls Abraham to be the person of the solution. And God says to Abraham, through you and your seed, your offspring, I'm going to bless the entire earth. And so the whole world is under a curse, but God is going to take care of the curse, lift the curse, and replace it with blessing through Abraham and his offspring. And that then it leads to really the whole story of the Bible and and where we're at here in Galatians chapter 3. The ultimate, uh, or the initial fulfillment, I should say, of the promised Abraham is Abraham's son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob becomes the patriarch of the Israelite nation. And so then we get Israel, the nation of Israel. They are the offspring of Abraham, through whom the blessing to the whole world is going to come. The problem is, as you read the story, the people of the promise, the nation of Israel, become part of the problem, and instead of bringing a blessing to the world, they become complicit with the curse, and they then experience the very curses of the law. The law had promised that if you uh, keep the law, you'll experience the blessing. If you break the law, you'll experience the curse, and it listed off various curses that you'd experience. The ultimate the ultimate curse would be exile. 
Um, well, the nation of Israel experienced that ultimate curse, went away into exile. By the time we get to Paul and Jesus' day, they have returned from physical exile, but they're still under foreign oppression, and the temple still lies empty, and the Jews know that they are, in a very real sense, still experiencing the curse of exile, the curse of the law. How is God going to solve this problem? Well, he solves it through the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Jesus, the Messiah, who, as we were about to see, takes the curse upon himself, exhausts the curse, and now brings God's blessing to the world for all who are in him. That in very short order, is an overview of the story of the Bible. And that's why Paul chooses Abraham here. It's not a random example. Abraham is the founding father of God's people. He is the one through whom the blessing is going to come. So verse 6 begins with, Even so Abraham believed God. That's how it begins. And that connects with verses 1 through 5 in this way. Galatians, how did you experience all of this stuff that God has for you? By works of Torah or by hearing with faith? Well, Paul assumes the answer. He knows the answer. It's hearing with faith. And he says, guess what? That's just like Abraham, because this is the way God always intended it to be. So, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is a essentially a quote from Genesis 15, 6 where God restates the promised Abraham. The promised Abraham was first given in Genesis 12. God calls him and states the promise that he's going to give him offspring, and through his offspring the world's going to be blessed. Well, in Genesis 15, God restates that promise to Abraham, and he does so by taking him outside, having him look up at the stars, see all the stars of the sky, and, and then he says, guess what, Abraham? Your offspring are going to be like that. Your offspring is going to be so numerous that you can't even count them, just like the stars of the sky. And then Genesis 15 says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What does it mean that it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Well, that word reckon means counted, calculated. It's roughly synonymous with, roughly parallel to, the idea of justification. So when Paul used the word uses the word justified, he often also will think in terms of this word reckoned. And that seems to be the case here in context because uh, just shortly before this at the end of chapter 2, he's been talking about being justified. Well, this is Abraham's justifying moment here in uh, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believes God and God counts him as righteous. God declares him as righteous. Abraham is in a right relationship with God and declared righteous, and in this friendship status with God, why? Not because he kept the Torah, but because he believed God. And so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now here's a couple details that are really important in the overall context of the book of Galatians. First is this, that um, many of Paul's contemporaries viewed the story of Abraham differently than Paul is using it here. And Paul, I think, is intentionally trying to contrast with him and set the record straight. Essentially, he's saying, guys, we need to actually read the text and let the text speak on its terms. And the reason for that is because uh, Abraham eventually is given the, the mark of circumcision to mark out his family by God. That happens in Genesis 17. And 
Jews beginning in the intertestamental time period and down, or at least we have evidence of it from that time period down to Paul's day, began to essentially say that this mark of circumcision shows that Abraham basically kept the law before the law was ever given. And so they tended to speak of Abraham as sort of like a prototypical Jew and keeping the law in principle before the law was ever given. Paul is going to emphasize here, no, that's not what the text says. The text emphasizes faith. The text emphasizes Abraham's faith. It was his faith that got him counted righteousness, not his works of Torah, because the Torah hadn't been given. The second thing is, is not only that, not just the faith, but even look at the chronology. This happens in Genesis 15. The covenant of circumcision with Abraham is given in Genesis 17, and there are 14 years between these events, 14 years between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. In other words, Abraham was counted righteous uh, apart from circumcision for, for 14 years. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, in other words, as an uncircumcised Gentile. That's significant for the background of Galatians. In 3.7, then, Paul draws out the implication of this fact from Abraham's life. He says, therefore, be sure it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham? Who are ultimately Abraham's descendants? Well, Paul says it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 to say, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel ahead of time beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Notice that, that uh, Paul says this is a gospel thing. And in fact, the gospel sort of is being preached ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Uh, One little technical note that's really important here in verse 8 is when it says, seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and all nations will be blessed in you, the word Gentile and the word nation is the same word in Greek. And it means both those things. And so translating differently here actually is confusing and we lose clarity because of that. It's the same in both Hebrew and Greek. Whether Hebrew or Greek, the word for Gentile, the word for nations is the same word. And so seeing that God would justify the nations by faith, God said, all nations will be blessed in you, or all Gentiles will be blessed in you. So God had promised to Abraham that the Gentiles, the nations, would be blessed in him. And so Paul draws the conclusion in verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. So ultimately, it's faith. Abraham shows us God justifies people by faith. Not only that, Abraham himself was a Gentile when he was justified. God is going to bless all people, all nations, all Gentiles in Abraham. So it's those who are of faith who are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now at this point, Paul turns his attention to the Old Testament law, right? The question is works of Torah are hearing with faith. He's shown how the priority of faith shows up right from the beginning of the story in the person of Abraham. Well, what about the law? And so verse 10, he turns his attention to the law. and This is what he says. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
And I would say verse 10 is not particularly controversial, even to the Paul's Jewish audience. Most Jews of the day knew that the law had led to a curse. They knew their history. They knew their story. They knew the Old Testament, in other words. They, as a people, experienced it on a daily basis. The presence of the Roman soldiers all in and around Jerusalem, the fact that God's Shekinah glory had never returned to the temple, reminded them of the fact that in 586 BC, they were carried away into captivity and the the Jerusalem was laid waste by the Babylonians. And yes, they returned to their homeland, but no, they're not totally uh, free from the curse because they're still under foreign occupation and God's presence is not referred, re- returned to the temple. And so when he says, for as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse, most Jews in Paul's day nodded their head in agreement with that. They recognized that. The, the problem is, is Paul had a different solution than they did. Uh, the goal was, let's be as righteous and as holy as we can, and maybe God will lift the curse and he'll return to the temple. And so you have all these various groups of Jews, Pharisees, the Essenes that, that created the Dead Sea Scrolls, and all these little groups that are trying all their little approach to try to maybe be as pure and holy as possible, assuming that if we just keep the law good enough, that'll free us from the curse. But they don't disagree that they are under or experiencing the curse of the law, the ultimate curse of the law, exile. And so Paul says, uh, he actually quotes from the law itself, from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. This is from that section of the Old Testament law um, that scholars often refer to as the Mount Ebal curses, where Moses is on Mount Ebal, and he's listing off the curses that will be experienced by the Jews if they fail to keep the Old Testament law, the ultimate of which was exile. So that's Deuteronomy 27:26. So the law brings a curse. Verse 11 tells us the solution to that. Though I think we need to uh, maybe consider a slightly modified translation to see that clearly. Let me read verse 11 to you, and then let me suggest how we could translate it, I think, a little bit better to see that this is the solution to the problem. Verse 11 says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And that works, kind of, but it makes it sound like the, quote, the righteous man shall live by faith is proving that no one's justified by the law. And I don't think that's the way the verse works. Paul, essentially, in verse 10 says, we know that no one's going to be justified by the law. Paul said in his own uh, experience when he was confronting Peter that no one's justified by the law. Paul feels like that point's been made and that point is agreed upon. Verse 10 clearly states that, like, cursed are those who are under the works of the law, right? So he doesn't need to prove that no one's justified by the law before God using this quote here in verse 11, this Old Testament quote. What he needs to do is provide a solution. And so I think the better translation of verse 11 is this. The word translated that at the beginning of verse 11 and the word translated for in the middle of verse 11 are the exact same word in Greek. It's the Greek word hati. And hati can mean that or it can mean for slash because, right? It can mean either one of those. And I think it's better in this case to reverse the order of the translation so that um, the first half is the because statement and the second half is the that statement. Let me read to you how the translation would sound in that case. 
Now, because no one is justified by God before the law, comma, that's the point he just made in verse 10. He's just restating verse 10 that this is the case. No one's going to be justified because we're under the curse. The law brought a curse. So now, because no one's justified by the law before God, comma, it is evident that the righteous man shall live by faith. And that, that, that is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk 2, 4, giving the solution to the problem. Since the law brings a curse... And, and since, therefore, no one's going to be justified before God by the Old Testament law, how are we going to be justified? It's evident that the righteous man shall live by faith. And that quote from Habakkuk is very, very important in view of Paul's thought world and how he's understanding all of this. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk has been complaining to God about the unrighteousness of the Jews. God says, don't worry, I'm going to solve that problem. I'm going to send the Babylonians, and they're going to come and take you away into exile. Then Habakkuk responds with, the, the, the cure is worse than the disease, God. What are you doing? And God basically says, you got to trust me on this one. The righteous man shall live by faith. Well, the Babylonians are being sent as the ultimate curse of the law. And so the context, the thought world for Paul is very, very closely connected to this idea of cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Habakkuk is dealing with that very curse, that the curse of exile, the curse of the Babylonians. And in that context, Habakkuk is told, here's the way righteous people live. Here's the way the just or justified person lives. He lives by faith. The word righteous and the word justified are from the same stem in, in Greek. They're both having to do with being right or being righteous, being just. And so how do you get justified? Well, Look what God told Habakkuk. The way we get justified, even in the midst of the curse of exile, is we get justified by faith. And so we're back to this issue. For Paul, the solution to the curse of the law is faith. And not just faith in general, as in Habakkuk's case, but faith in a very specific person, faith in the Messiah, Jesus himself. So, now, verse 11, reading with my translation, now because the law brought a curse and no one is justified before God by the law, it's evident that the righteous one shall live by faith. However, verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So you have your options. Live by faith, live by doing the law. Which one are we going to do? Well, Paul has already shown living by doing the law didn't work for us. That led to the curse. The only option that's really workable left is living by faith. And so um, we need to now live by faith. And so Paul says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So the law brought a curse but God took care of the curse. How? Well, Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To redeem means setting us free. The, the word redeem or redemption always is the payment of a price to set someone free or something free. And so Messiah, Christ, uh, paid a price to set us free from the curse of the Old Testament law. He did so by becoming a curse for us. When Jesus 
hung on the cross and died, he is experiencing the, the curse itself. He's taking the curse upon himself, absorbing the curse of the law, the curse of God's wrath, so that we could go free. For it is written, verse 13 goes on to say, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 21-23. It originally referred to hanging people on a pole or hanging people on a wall or some such thing uh, after they had been killed. And it was a practice that demonstrated that this person had been cursed by God. And with the course of time in Jewish history, as history changed and all of a sudden you get to the Romans and crucifixion, the Jews viewed people who were crucified as being under God's curse. And so Messiah here hanging on a cross is obviously cursed by God from the Jewish perspective. It was this that made the cross such a stumbling block to the Jews. They, they couldn't get past the fact that how would God curse his own Messiah? Well, for Paul, that was necessary. The curse that the Messiah experienced was necessary so that God's people could be freed from the curse in him. And so uh, Jesus took the curse upon us so that we could go free from the curse of the law. And the result of that in verse 14 is really two. He says this in verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing promised Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So the, the blessing that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and so on, that blessing now can finally come to the Gentiles and all the Gentiles can come into the family of God. That's the first result. So that we, probably we all, meaning um, not just we Gentiles, not just we Jews, but we all, the people of God, so that we all would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And that's the conclusion Paul wants to, to drive home ultimately is, how, O Galatians, did you receive the Spirit? Well, it came by faith. That's how it came. And that's the way God has always intended it to be. That's the, the, the whole story of Abraham revolves around faith. God's people are marked out by the very same kind of faith as Abraham. The law brought a curse, and Jesus freed us from that curse so that we could experience the blessing of Abraham by, by virtue of faith. So this section really highlights for us the priority of faith. God's way is the way of faith. Whatever else you would put in, you know, whatever blank you would try to fill in to say, well, in order to really be part of God's people, you need whatever you, you need to do, you need, right? Like whatever we would put in there, like God's people are marked out by faith plus whatever it is, faith plus church attendance, faith plus daily devotions, faith plus this, you know, believing this, faith plus this political party, whatever it is. No, Paul says it's faith. It's faith. It's faith in Jesus that marks out the people of God. And so we are free from the curse by virtue of faith and nothing else. And that's the primary point being made here. And that's the point I think we need to wrestle with as God's people today, what does it look like to be people who live by faith like Abraham, who trust God like Abraham did, who look at the promises of God and says, I don't see how and I don't, I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but God, I trust you. God's people are marked out by faith. And so the operating method for the people of God is faith. I think another important little implication of this section that we should think through is, God called Abraham to himself so that he could bless the nations through him. 
And now, in Christ, we experience the blessing of Abraham, not so that we can keep it all to ourselves, but so that we can extend that blessing and fulfill God's dream of being a blessing to the world, a blessing to the, the nations, a blessing to all mankind. Blessed people bless people. And in Abraham, um, God is bringing his blessing to the world through the Messiah and through the Messiah's people. And so we now are part of the blessed people, and that means our job is to be a blessing to the world. So in your sphere of influence, wherever you live and with the people you interact with, how can you bring the blessing of God's goodness and God's grace and God's rescue and God's restoration to your world? The world you live in day in and day out, your neighborhood, your family, your co-workers, how can you be a blessing to them as you walk by faith in Jesus the Messiah?